If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, you go together. And as I've launched strategies within marketing and with very, very tight alignment with sales teams, it's building that coalition of champions where it's not your idea or your product or your strategy. It really is a team strategy. You're listening to Sunny Side Up, a B2B podcast that brings you the juiciest insights from go-to-market leaders and practitioners. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Sunny Side Up. I'm your host, Joe Delamere. Today, I'm super excited to talk to Palfi Verma on mastering the art of growth hacking, strategies for accelerating business growth. With a distinguished career spanning over a decade and a half, Palfi has earned a reputation as a dynamic and visionary marketing strategist. Honing her skills with prestigious firms such as Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, and Accenture, she has meticulously crafted her role within the financial services industry. She currently serves as the marketing strategy leader at Westfield, a fast-growing international insurance company where she continues to demonstrate her marketing acumen. Palvi, I'm really excited to talk to you. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks, Joe. Thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, of course. I know our guests are excited to uh, learn and listen. And so, you know, with that, if you don't mind, how we just jump right in. Let's do that. I am all ready. <laughs> Perfect. So to kick us off, Palvi, can you share your experience and insights on setting up successful B2B ABM practices for organizations? Uh, absolutely. So um, successful B2B ABM practices. So I personally have set them up at um, a couple different org sizes, right? Like startups at various stages, as well as um, in big corporations. And honestly, Joe, for me, there are three things that kind of need to happen for it to be a successful ABM practice. And the first one is really just getting that internal buy-in and that preparation up front. And I know it's obvious, you know, you can't, but I have seen as I've, as I've had a couple of friends go through ABM launches in, uh, in their orgs, um, you can't underestimate, like, you know, a lot of people underestimate the time and effort to get that internal buy-in and how critical that is. So that to me is the first thing that you need to have that successful ABM practice, you know, you have to get the key stakeholders, both on the sales and the marketing sides, to be comfortable to try out the pilot. You also have to ensure everybody is comfortable with the costs of the pilot. And not just that, no, once you have the key accounts, right, that you're going to focus on ABM, really just do not sway away from those key accounts until you have a very valid reason and not just keep adding other kind other accounts to that pilot or as your first launching. So that's number one. The second, and I think this is where all those um, flops, uh, ABM flops come to my mind is when when we don't think about the world view of the the customers or the the ICPs, right? So the the key companies that you're selling it to, if you don't think through their worldview, 
um, and their collective worldview of the organization that you're selling to, right? So we all know the famous ABM flops, that Microsoft campaign that make love not war, war one, and uh, and uh, my I'm from financial services, so I always think about that Bank of America one um, um, and the Wells Fargo one. But to me, it, they all came down to not understanding that worldview. And the third one is uh, underestimating the listening and the silence journey that the, our, the sales team has to go through um, to to really underst- to really close that sale, right? So Seth Godin talks about Peter Singer's paradox model of urgency. Um, and for me, it's how do we create that here and now, that urgency in the here and now so it feels important so you actually get that sale done versus having it kind of keeping it long and understanding that balance. So those are the three for me. Um, I can speak more on any of that, Joe, but you tell me. Yeah, that is fantastic insight and honestly a unique and I think refreshing take on some of the challenges and and things that I think often go overlooked at times when people are trying to set up ABM. And I really think, you know, that second and third piece resonate with a lot of our listeners, you know, being able to think through the lens of your customer and not just kind of force on them things that you think they want to hear, but truly understand their worldview. And I think that might even tail into creating that urgency when you actually have an applicable lens into their universe. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and for me, it's um, as marketers, sometimes what happens is we want to create like a splash, but you still need to ensure that does the account or the kind of customers you want to target, would they like that gimmick or that splash? And that's the balance that you need to, you know, when I talk about that worldview to me, that's the part that often gets overlooked within that ABM practice and launch that that gets forgotten. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'm curious, Palti, when you think about this from a partner lens, are there any challenges that you see faced by whether it's a small business or a large organization when selling through a partner model? And if so, do you have any examples that you can share with the listeners? I, you know what, um, I can talk about that partner challenge till my voice goes <clears throat> goes hoarse. It really just did, didn't it? Uh, but uh, and make sure Joe, you never ask me that question uh, when I'm drunk because you're never going to hear the end of this. Um, <laughs> um, I I am in the insurance space right now, and I've been in the financial services and the asset management space, and partner models all we've got, um, and there are. In terms of those challenges, right, that that organization face when they're selling through the partner model is is they'll have a whole bunch of partners, right? So to give you an example, right, an insurance company, most insur- traditional insurance companies um, that you know of that sell to businesses, uh, travelers, etc., my company, Westfield, they, we have we work through independent insurance agents, those partners and um, financial advisors. Uh, the asset management companies go through financial advisors. And the challenge on both ends I've seen is that grassroots perpetuation, right? So ensuring you not just have the, tra- you know, you 
don't just create that partnership, but you actually ensure that the person who will be talking to that end customer, that new new employees as they're coming on board, um, they get trained properly. And keeping a tight eye on that new employee training programs at the partner agencies, um, to, that's where the fails and the struggle happen, right? So uh, to me, that's the biggest biggest challenge that I that I see see within when we are selling through that partner model um, there are other things obviously you know you, your our partners are often selling our in our product along with our competitors product um, how do you ensure that there's always a conflict they're selling both of us how do I make sure they understand how I'm different what I'm different um, I don't want to just throw money at them, but like, what are the other ways we can go about it? That to me is is definitely a second one um, that I that I always think is something you need to respect and be cognizant of, and figure out ways to to work work with the partners. I think those are those are my top two. So yeah, really coming down to that kind of cohesion between the brand story and the value proposition and making sure that it can be kind of easily translated across, you know, those uh, partners ultimately into the end users. Absolutely. Yeah, because they are the, you know, they really need to understand our brand story, our positioning, understand the products and understand how we are different versus our competitors, like to us, in a way, along with the customers, our partners and their employees are our true true custom customers there are salespeople so we need to make sure they understand it yeah no absolutely and you know you mentioned kind of competitors and so yeah, i promise i wouldn't say it but i'm going to do it you hear a lot right now of doing more with less and so i'm curious you know what marketing strategies can companies adopt to maintain a competitive edge in a seemingly you know ever more resource constrained world and you know, further, is there some sort of a framework, you know, an adoptive framework that they can use to implement these strategies effectively? If there are any, you can think. Of? Yeah, um, that's that. That is a good question, right? So, the reality, Joe, is that everybody has resource constraints, right? Like resource constraint exists, and they. The challenge is, it's not just resource constraint. You also have that sunk cost fallacy where we have done something in the past, we have some momentum, not really a lot. Um, and, and I see so many companies from retail startups to big financial companies, everybody, I think everybody go is starting to do, um, to, everybody is really just trying to be present on every channel. And you see them on Facebook and you see them on LinkedIn, you see them churning out blogs. Everything is bland, everything is boring. They're doing the minute their competitor does something, they're gonna going to do that same exact thing. The to me, it really is thinking about, hey, we do have resource constraints. We have so many we have 20 channels at the end of the day, really, but like, you know, we have all these channels and and this really irritates me because, and it's getting to a point for me is where I'm ready to almost write a book around it because I feel so passionately. But we, my core philosophy, uh, you know, 
to ensure that we have a competitive edge is is really thinking through and making sure we we recognize the reality, which is we have resource constraints. Um, and for us to to really, really outshine and actually get that com- explosive growth, companies and organizations and marketing teams, they need to realize that that we need to use, we cannot just do, we need to override our familiarity bias. We need to stop diluting our efforts, be on every channel. We need to figure out what's that one underutilized channel, create a positioning that works. Um, Andrew Chen, he's a partner at a VC firm and somebody I really like. And he said something about uh, to the effect of the law of shitty CDRs dictate that companies that really take off are ones that usually employ underutilized channels and channel strategies. And for me, that competitive edge in a resource-constrained world essentially means we really look up, give it a very close look on all the channels we are using to get our message out there and really figure out how what are we going to say and which are the right op- most optimal channels. So that's that to me is um, is what is I think is the only way to maintain that competitive edge. You can see I feel very passionately about it, don't I? So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm waiting for the book to be to be published. So I'm going to hold you to it. Um, well, Paul, you're an award winning marketer and have a very long list of accolades. But one that I'm curious to double click into is. Can you explain the methodology you employed to achieve revenue growth from seven to twenty-one million dollars within one year? Absolutely, and and thank you. Yeah, um, honestly, it, it really comes back to that previous question of yours, uh, Joe, which is maintaining that competitive edge, knowing that we have resources, and it's you know it's this is a framework I ended up doing more for myself it really derived you know not from my own knowledge but you know the marketing and business giants of the past 50 years um i'm a book nerd i love to read as all my friends can attest to uh to it is i love creating frameworks so i created this almost a step-by-step process to identifying the best strategy and channels to create growth and that's what i used um for for this framework um, and over the past 12 years, I've been honing it with really good good and great results. We had um, one series beef, which we took, you know, the one that we talked about, the 7 to 21 million. I had another another product and financial services. We took it from 3.5 million to 18 million in revenue. Um, that was within 18 months. And it's really a this methodology is really just that five-part process where you start to think about um, you start to think about what's your true ICP, what's the true ideal customer profile, what's the customer's worldview, what are their needs. Um, you really use that, you know, the empathy and the limbic system of the brain. The Simon Sinek calls it the why, right? So you look at your own offering, and we look at my positioning, the message, and we ensure that there's a fit there. We obviously look at competitors and, you know, 
I, I love to do this exercise with my team and I encourage everybody to do it, is to say, hey, why is our customer right in buying from my competitors? What are, and that really helps us figure out what are the things we need to change or what, what are the things we need to um, change about ourselves or what are the things we, what are the things our competitors are doing right? And from there, in reality, Joe, there are like 20 channels that exist. There are only 20 channels that any marketer today can use. You know, you've got your same ones, the blogs, the social media, the digital marketing, but there are a couple uh, underutilized ones that nobody starts to think like engineering as marketing or unconventional PR uh, or um, or doing what Dropbox did where they only said, hey, we'll give you more space if you get a friend to sign up um, and, th- and using viral marketing uh, kind of tactics there. And from there, then, you know, thinking through the costs and then you come up with the best place, right? You not just think through that creative part of the brain, you are also thinking through the analytical part and saying, with the money I have, with the resources we have, um, based on all the cool and the fun ideas we have, what's the most optimal and really using that as your core strategy and only deploying one or two other test strategies along with it to test and grow quickly. Um, so that that really is is my framework. I'm, I'm starting to put it in a cohesive manner where uh, my friends have suffered through my 100th slide PowerPoint deck, um, uh, but I'm starting to make it <laughs> less than that, uh, uh, less than that and really like moving it from that PowerPoint over to in, in a manner that no other people can actually read and understand. Well, I, for one, am eager to see it and I know our listeners will be as well. I mean, it sounds like you brought it down to a science and it's it's really fascinating. And I think you know, it reminds me of kind of bringing it back full circle to what you first mentioned uh, on the earlier in the pod was you know the importance of getting buy-in and alignment internally to align on these initiatives and to align on these kind of pro- uh, processes and frameworks. And so, I'm curious: Do you have strategies for gaining that buy-in and navigating the decision-making process when you're looking to implement new initiatives within a large organization? Absolutely, yes. Um, I I think the you know for me it's two two things really like you know that I always ensure I keep I two or actually maybe three right so three things that I, I always ensure you know as I get uh, as I try to get buy in and navigate that decision making process um, for me one is understanding the timing within an organization. Um, That is, I can have the best accounts and have the best product to sell um, and the right pitch, but if it's not the right time, um, you you know, there's too much going on in the org, people are getting fired. nobody's nobody's thinking about growth at that time or nobody's thinking about buying my product, right? So unless it is a, you know, non-firing kind of product, I don't know. Uh, but so one is really just understanding that timing within, right? So a lot of folks will listen to my to the first pitch. They are curious, they would want to learn, but they may not get back. And uh, within my organization as as 
I will pitch a story. I will definitely look at that timing. Hey, is this a time for our organization to really get, is, can I get a buy-in for this or is it just a yes because they don't want to say a no? Um, the second is building that coalition of champions, right? So they say, if you want to go fast, go alone. Um, if you want to go far, you go further, you go together. Um, and as I've launched strategies within marketing and with very, very tight alignment with sales sales teams, it's building that coalition of champions where it's not your idea or your product or your strategy. It really is a team strategy. Um, it's that's where I spend a lot of a, a lot of my my time. And the way I personally, for me, the way I do it is um, storytelling and visualization. Right. So if you can't tell a story, then you can never get the buy in. And we know as marketers. We know that, and yet we sometimes end up swaying too much towards the data. I I have done that personally earlier in my career where I'm a data nerd. I love story. I love looking at the data. I'll get lost in it. But for me to get that buy-in, I have to use that data, but tell the story and bring others along onto that story to get get that excitement and get that vision and get the feeling of that here and now brought in um, and really just focusing on on that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's I think it's hard for anybody to not get caught up in the data, but that is great advice to kind of, you know, have strike the balance and be able to tell the entire story. Well, awesome. And so to, to switch gears here into a little bit of a different, you know, part of the segment of the pod that I know our listeners love. You mentioned loving to read. I think a lot of us do as well. And so I'm curious, you know, what are, what are the reads you're, you know, thinking about? What have you been reading lately? Are there any kind of books or blogs, newsletters, sites that you would recommend our listeners check out? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, for me, I think I always, um, I like to think outside of that B2B space. For me, at the end of the day, I'm selling to people and then they're humans and I'm not selling to, I'm selling to an organization, a collective of people, but I still need to understand the people aspect of it. I um, And my favorite, my absolute favorite books that I think I give it to everybody in my team and recommend it to everybody in the teams is um, Seth Godin's purple cow it's all about standing out and making sure you know you really understand um that art of standing out um understanding uh, reading simon sinek start with why i know these are obvious but like to me these two are are the ones that we you know we often forget in that b2b space um and besides that i i like to i love um, um, a Andrew Chen, I know I mentioned him earlier. He's a VC who's focused solely on marketing and growth. Um, uh, uh, and he has a blog uh, out there. Uh, so I think if you just Google Andrew Chen, love shitty CTRs, you will see his blog. And um, that I, I definitely read his blog and Seth's blog. They kind of counter balance each other set is a little bit more philosophical and Andrew Chen is very you know tactics and he gives really good story examples um 
And for me, it helps me with my creative thinking uh, aspects of my brain for sure. So I've those those are the top top three that come to my mind. That those are fantastic recommendations. And I know you've kind of threaded in and referenced a couple of folks um, throughout our conversation, which has been fantastic. But I'm curious, or would there be anybody else, you know, in or outside of the lens of B two B that you might either recommend us trying to get on the show or that folks follow out there um, beyond you know the Seth Good and Simon Sinek and Andrew Chan. Yes, there honestly are are so so many people, but um, I um, three inspirational people uh, in the B two B space. I think there are three people I feel um, are very interesting, and I would love to have you have bring them on the on the blog, Joe, is because I'm curious about listening to them. Um, one is Daryl Theory. He's within the insurance space um he's somebody who thinks extremely differently about growth technology and has made some very interesting jumps in his career from svp of sales and marketing at tesla to at cmo at some of the big insurance companies uh, fireman's fund uh, uh and now he's in that um uh you know uh he's at a couple big uh, reinsurance companies uh at their CTO level, so he's really has a he's somebody who thinks very differently. If nothing else, I would highly recommend your listeners to follow his feed. He posts very interesting content, uh, so he would be one. And a second person, I think I would be amiss if I don't mention is really my current CEO um, at Largent, and I'm I'm don't like to I don't. I'm hesitant to bring his name, but he is um he's very inspirational in that he unlike most CEOs that you see out there, he's an introvert, um uh and yet he's leading and he's making a couple big moves in it for our company, which is a hundred and seventy-five year old company where he has um where within the last couple of years we went from being U.S. Uh, only to suddenly having an international presence. So we bought uh, an insurance um, um, a company, part of the business um, in London. We've become international like that. He he changed the, um, he added a whole different business unit to our organization, a 175-year-old organization. They've been doing kind of the same things. Suddenly, we are in the specialty insurance space versus just that traditional insurance space. Um, he is somebody who thinks very, very differently in that B2B world, uh, growth world. That's very interesting. Uh, a third person, and she's definitely a personal mentor of mine, um, and somebody who, again, I like people who think outside the box is Lakshmi Reddy. Uh, she's a venture partner at Sibylla Masters Fund. Uh, and she has done some very interesting work at companies like Vipro, Alexor, Epsilon, uh, and more. And has his, she's been a CMO at all these companies and really just driven ex excellent growth and um, and has a very different mindset than than most people I know. That is fantastic. Three again, three more fantastic recommendations. I know 
both myself and our listeners are going to be excited to double click into and, and check out some of the good stuff from these folks. And so, uh, Paul, the one last question for you here, and you know, I know everybody's going to be enjoying the insights you've delivered, but how can people get in touch with you, particularly after this podcast? LinkedIn is definitely the best way um, for folks to connect, contact. I would love to uh, get to know some of your listeners. I do um, love to write, although I don't write as much. Uh, but I do have a website. It's my name, palvigv.com. Uh, and I put a lot of my random frameworks around travel and uh, my experiences um, and some of the books I read, there are synopsis out there. It's called, it's palvigv.com. So I'm also, um, also on that, on that website so they can contact me through there as well. Perfect. Well, Paulvi, it's been a treat having you on the show. I really enjoyed our conversation. I know our listeners will as well. And I want to thank you. Thank you for spending the time with me. You're most welcome. Thank you for having me, Joe. Today's episode is made possible by Demandbase. Demandbase is smarter GTM for B2B brands to help marketing and sales teams spot the juiciest opportunities earlier and progress them faster. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Sunnyside Up. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us and subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you consume podcasts. You can also find us on YouTube and Demandbase TV. 